So, good to see you today. Uh, yes, you may be seated. And today, uh, we actually begin a new series. This uh, series of study it's going to take us through the summer. That's what we're going to do for the next uh, 12 weeks. And we're calling it Wise Up. It's based on 1 Corinthians. Do you know why God gave us 1 Corinthians? Because sometimes we're not very smart. All right? Not very wise. You see... And here's this fallacy. You know, as I look around the room here, I see very intelligent people. All right? But being intelligent doesn't mean you're wise. Smart people do stupid stuff. Uh, I have a PowerPoint slide to prove that. You can have an extremely high IQ and make extremely unwise decisions that you will pay an extremely high price in the process. Now, our Heavenly Father hates to see us suffer from our foolish choices, and that's why God gave us 1 Corinthians. So we can make wise choices in this life for the life to come. Today we begin this 12-week study in which God tells us to wise up. Now, Usually on a Sunday morning, we take, you know, 10 verses, 8 verses, 12 verses, something like that. We're going to say the whole book in 12 weeks, okay? That means we are going to do like a chapter or more a week, okay, every Sunday. Now, obviously, we're just going to hit some of the high points, and this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you this, this week to read 1 Corinthians. Hopefully you'll read every day and stop and go through it. You see, on Sunday it's going to be kind of like we're in a speedboat skimming the surface. But during the week, I pray that you will dive into that chapter and you'll just soak it all up. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in our brother Sosthenes. He was like his helper. He, he probably wrote it. it. Paul dictated To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, or your translation, your version might say saints, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and our Lord, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul told the Corinthians, uh, the Christians in, Cor in Corinth, and he's telling the Christians in Sarasota that you've been called. Hey, we like to get a call from an important person. Friends, you've been called by God to do several things. We're going to go through them quickly. One, to be the church of God. Now, when we hear the word church here in America, I mean, we think of, well, probably the building that we meet in, and then we probably think about all the churches. You know, there's almost one on every corner. And so, you know, we really minimize that word. We hear church, we think of, you know, insignificant things. Friend, it's much greater than that. Friend, you've been called by God to be in the family of God. That's what the church is. Family of God. 
It's the bride of Christ. Jesus loves the church so much, he calls it his bride. He says, I'm coming back for it. It's the eternal kingdom of God. Friend, that's what you have been called to. Second, you've been called, these verses tell us, to be sanctified. Now, we don't use that word very much at all. It literally means to be set apart. And in this case, to be set apart to Jesus Christ. When I got married, there was a part in the ceremony that said, and, and do you, Ron, take Donna to be your wife, etc.? Forsaking all others and to be totally committed to her. See, friend, when we become a Christ follower, we, we make a, a, a pledge to forsake the, all the other gods around us and to put nothing before Jesus. And that includes our job, our possessions, our favorite team, our favorite hobby, whatever it is. We're to be, he's to be the first love of our life. We're set apart to him. And hey, I'll be honest, I do things, there are days, a lot of days, when I let other things come before the Lord. I hope you don't have my problem, but I bet you do. It's hard to be sanctified, totally set apart, right? And we say, yeah, it's hard to be set apart to Jesus in America. Well, let me tell you, it's a little hard in Corinth. Also, we got a map of Corinth, and I like maps, but maybe you're not all that crazy about them. But this map says three things uh, about Corinth. Uh, one, it's in Greece, all right? And that, Greece was the center of Greek philosophy. And, and the people in Corinth prided themselves on being wise, on being intelligent, on being sophisticated. And as a result, they looked down on Jesus, just some carpenter, uneducated. They looked down on Christ followers as being uneducated simpletons. It was a center of Greek philosophy. Second, it was a rich trade center. You see, it's on a 20-mile land bridge. Maybe the next slide, another map we have here. And I like this one, not so much because of the cute little guy in the airplane and on the kayak there, but uh, there, that's, that's uh, you see where the arrow is pointing? That's where Corinth was. It was on a 20-mile land bridge between Europe and Asia. And see, Sailors, they didn't want to go around, so they would go through. They would take that land bridge. Now, this slide shows you that a canal was built on that land bridge in 1893. But what did they do back in the first century? They would move ships across the dry land. They would roll them on logs pulled by slave labor. So, while the slaves were doing that... What did the sailors do? They went into town. They went into Corinth. And that's the third thing this map tells us, that, that Corinth was a sin city. Merchants and sailors who'd been on ships for weeks with no females on board, you can imagine what they had on their mind. A few years ago, I was uh, on a flight, and I was seated next to a guy and I found out he was retired Navy, and we had, we had a really good conversation. And, and I just 
God opened the door, and I started sharing Christ with him, and, you know, saying, uh, saying how we could know for sure that we're going to heaven, and I was just explaining to him that, of course, nobody could be good enough to earn heaven. Heaven's a perfect place. You can't be good enough. And, you know, I, I, I didn't know much about him, and I said to him, well, now, and I'm sure you're a good man, and I'm sure you've lived a good life, and he stopped me. And he said, didn't you hear me tell you that I was in the Navy? <laughs> the seaport of Corinth was filled with every kind of moral depravity. Everything. And it was not only just their lifestyle on the side, it was their religion. There was a temple in Corinth to the god Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the goddess of what? Of love. Well, really, of sex, okay? There was a temple, in, uh, there was a temple to Aphrodite. They had a hundred temple prostitutes. That's how they practiced their religion. In the first century, if you wanted to call someone a morally depraved person, you know what you said about them? They're a Corinthian. That's the kind of city that these Corinthian Christians lived in. And verse 2 tells us <laughs> that we, that they and we are called to be holy people, to be saints. Now, when we hear the word saint, we usually probably think of someone very holy and also someone very dead. But God calls living people saints and people who aren't very holy. But God calls us saints if we have accepted Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And here's the shocking thing. As we go through 1 Corinthians this summer, we're going to find out that the, the church there, the Christians in Corinth, he called them holy, he called them saints, but they were doing very unholy things. So, some were teaching that Jesus Christ didn't really rise from the dead. They had church fights. They were suing each other. They were guilty of immorality. One of the church leaders was having an affair with his own stepmother, and they didn't do anything about it. If you were to list all of the local churches mentioned in the New Testament and rank them according to how holy they are, Corinth would be at the bottom. Holy. You're called to be holy. You know, I, I don't, I've never heard anybody here today say, yes, I'm a holy person. We just don't do it. We don't call ourselves holy. And here's the amazing thing. God calls us holy. We're called holy by God if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior because Jesus is holy. It's his holiness. And you see, God not only forgives our sin, but if we accept his son as our Savior, God treats us as if we had never sinned because his son never did. When God looks at the heart of a Christ follower, God doesn't see your sin. He sees the blood of his son covering and cleansing you from sin. We're called holy by God. And second, we're called by God to live holy lives. 
God loves us just the way we are, but God loves us too much to leave us that way. And he's going to work in our lives and bring holiness to us. But we say, but, but how in the world can, can we live holy lives? How do we do that? Do you go to a monastery? Do you, do you just withdraw totally from the world? What do you do? Jesus told us. You want to know how to be holy? Love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said, if you get that right, you'll get everything else right. Now, this is going to come as a shock to, to you, but Donna and I are very different. She's nice. She's good looking. We're different. We like different things. One of us likes tea, one of us likes coffee. One of us likes chick flicks, one likes sports. When I fell in love with Donna, I started wanting to like the things that she liked. And as our love grew, I started loving some of the things that she loved, except for chick flicks, of course. But because I love Donna, I now love talking to Donna and being with her and walking on the beach. And see, when you ask the Lord to help you love him with all your heart, you'll start loving the things he loves. He's, he starts making you holy. And, and your love for sinful things will shrink and your love for holy things will get hotter and hotter. You're called to be holy. Next, you're called to be together, verse 2 tells us, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, those called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, there's no such thing as a private Christian. We, we, a lot of people say, well, Religion is private. Well, religion might be private, but Christianity is not. It's personal, but it's not private. And it's not a solitary thing. We're called to follow Christ. We walk with others following Christ. We walk as e with each other as we walk with Jesus. And, and friend, that's why it's so important for you to have a, a group of, of Christians that you're growing with and learning with and praying with you got to be on a ministry team. you got to be in a small group. Something you got to have. We don't, this is not a small group. You need a group. We don't follow Christ alone. You follow him with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Next, you've been called, you'll like this one, to be rich. Yeah. That's what verse 4 says. For in him you have been what? Enriched. In every way, in every way. Rich in eternal things, not just earthly things. Now, God may be able to trust you with earthly things. He can't trust a lot of us, okay? But God may be able to trust you with, with earthly things to be rich in those. But, friend, God wants to give you some far, something far better than that. He wants to give you eternal riches, things that last, things that you'll never lose. And, friend, if 
the only riches that you have are earthly riches. In eternity, you have nothing. Next, he calls us to be gifted. I told you, we're flying through. I hope you'll camp in these, dive into these this week. But verse 7 says you're gifted. You're called to be gifted. Verse 7, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. God has given you gifts. Spiritual gifts, eternal gifts. God's given you spiritual gifts so that you can serve him and serve others and do things that matter, that make a difference forever. Verse 8, I love this. God has called you to be raptured. Did you, you even know what that means? Verse 8, he will also keep you firm to the end. Hey, you, you got a rough road getting through this life here, but he's called you to be firm to the end so that you will be blameless when on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, what's he coming back? What's he talking about? He's talking about the day when the clouds are going to break apart and Jesus is going to come back for his church. He's going to come back for his bride. He's going to come back for his followers. He's going to rapture them. He's going to take them out of this world and take them to heaven. Friend, Jesus Christ wants to come back for you. He wants to rapture you. Are you following me? following him and verse 9 tells us that you've been called to the, be the BFF of Jesus okay half of you know what that is best friend forever you have been called to be the best friend forever of Jesus verse 9 God has called you into the fellowship with, with his son Jesus Christ our Lord. He said in John 15 to his, to his followers, he said, I don't call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. You're my friends. You're my friends. If you follow Jesus, you're his best friend forever. You've been called by God to experience all these things. Best friends forever of Jesus. Rich, holy, but first chapter wakes us up in verse 10 but you Corinthians he says and, and us here today you have conflicts verse 10 I appeal to you brothers and sisters in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be what no divisions among you but that you be Perfectly united in mind and heart. God called them to unity. But the sad truth is that there in the church in Corinth, there were divisions. Now, have you ever heard of a church that had divisions? Maybe one or two. I read a story this week. A solo pilot in a small plane had engine failure and failure and crashed on a deserted island in the Pacific. With no radio, he knew he wouldn't be found for months or years, so he built shelter and settled down to live alone on this deserted island. But one day, after several years, a passing, passing ship finally saw his signal and came to his rescue. As the sailors set foot on the island, they saw the little settlement that he had built. They asked, what are those three buildings? Well, he said, 
first one is my house. And then the second one there, that's my church. And the third one is also my church. And they said, why did you build two churches? And he said, well, I left the first church because I didn't like some of the things that were going on there. Ever been in a church where you didn't like some of the things going on? Where maybe there were a few conflicts or something like that? Friend, if you went to a, a church where there was only one person, you, there'd still be conflicts in that church. Because we have conflicts. And people leave churches all the time. And, and now, if that church is not faithful to God's word, you ought to leave it, okay? But that's not usually the reason why people leave. They leave because they don't like somebody else. Or they leave because they, something that has nothing to do with the mission of the church. We have conflicts. We have conflicts uh, over what you like versus what others like. We, have, we all have personal preferences, don't we? And so we Christians, I mean, you know, we're, we're supposed to be united. We're supposed to have unity, all right? That doesn't mean uniformity. Everybody likes the same thing. It just means we don't fight over it. But Christians, you know, churches, they fight over the right version of the Bible. They fight over the type of preaching. You know, is it expositories that go verse by verse, or is it thematic, okay? We fight over the music. You know, is it loud or soft or organ or guitar? We fight over the color of the carpet. We fight over, do we have pews or chairs? It, should the air conditioning be 72 or 78? Should the Starbucks, should the coffee be Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts? Those are why people leave churches. This is why we have conflict, personal preferences. The Corinthian church was really divided over personalities. We find that in verse 11. My brothers and sisters, Paul writes, some from Chloe's household. Chloe was a member. Somebody came with a message for him. They've informed me that there are quarrels among you. You're fighting. What I mean is this. One of you says, I'll follow Paul. Another, I'll follow Apollos. Another, I'll follow Cephas. Still another said, I'll follow Christ. There were these people that they were getting into these little camps, you know. And one of them liked Paul, and another one liked the pastor of Paulus. And, you know, and they're really spiritual. Oh, no, we like Jesus. Okay? What's he say in verse 13? Is Christ divided like that? Was Paul crucified for you? Well, don't say you're a Paul. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you're baptized in my name. I am not going to be the source of division. Yes, I did baptize the uh, household of Stephanus, but that beyond that, I don't remember anyone else. 4, verse 17, Christ did not send me to. He sent me to preach the gospel, not with, wit, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Churches in conflict. Oh, it can happen so much. And it's so deadly. Uh, Donna, when she was, she uh, started going to church when she was uh, eight or ten or so forth, and 
uh, accepted the Lord and, uh, and her parents, and it was, it was great. And then when she was about 12 years old, that church had a church split. Ugly. Calling each other names. Fighting over things that, that aren't the mission of the church. And, and Donna's parents were so hurt that they left the church. And I, I don't know how, but except for the grace of God, God, Donna kept going. How cool. So many people fighting with each other. And, and friend, just like in Corinth, we can have in our churches today theological camps, the Calvinists arguing with the Arminians, the Reformed arguing with the Pentecostals. That's not it. We can have relational cliques. You know, it's easy for Christians just to want to stay in their little, little circle and not reach out to those that need Jesus. And that grieves the Father's heart. His children fight over things that don't matter. We have quarrels. We have conflicts. And Paul wrote 1 Corinthians so that you and I could wise up and have wisdom instead of just knowledge or intelligence so that we could have wisdom so we would know right things and do right things. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Satan and Eve, or Satan uh, convinced Adam and Eve that if they just, you know, ate of the forbidden fruit, do what God told them not to do. If they did that, they would be as wise as God and friend, today our world believes that we are wiser than God. People today are telling the one who created us that his laws uh, about uh, sex, uh, about marriage, about uh, creation, about just everything. We're telling God those, those ideas are old-fashioned and foolish. And that we're more enlightened. Than he is. We tell God, we don't like what you tell us to do. We got a better plan. And friend, that is not wisdom, that's foolishness. How insane to tell the Creator we're smarter than He is. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, so we'd wise up. Well, what is the source of our wisdom? We find out in verses 18 to 25, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, what's the cross? What's the message of the cross? It's the power of God, and it's the wisdom of God in our lives. You see, the cross and all that that means, and what happened there, and what it was for. The cross, that's the most basic truth that God has given to us. He sent his son to die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven. And the world calls that foolish. The world says, oh, you believe in a bloody religion. No. And, and there are even churches that reject that truth. I saw on a church website 
this statement. Jesus did not come to die as a sacrifice for our sins. We worship a God who would not kill his own son. You know, and you could take the, oh, yeah, well, yeah, we don't want to worship a God that would kill his own son. I mean, that sounds barbaric and, you know, heathen. Friend, God didn't kill his son. But he did sacrifice him for us. God gave his sinless son because we're sinners who need a savior who need the only Savior that God accepts, His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and friend, God, the message God has given us is that God doesn't accept other Saviors. Because all the other religious founders that the world might accept as ways to God, you know what? They're still in the grave. <laughs> Jesus came out of the grave and He's on the throne. He's the way. He goes on, verse 19, it is written, God says this, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise, the so-called wisdom that we humans think we have, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Again, this is the center of Greek philosophy. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. For since in the wisdom of God, through its wisdom, God did not, through its wisdom, did not know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now the Jews demand a sign. They were always asking Jesus for a sign. The Greeks, they looked for wisdom. They loved Greek philosophy. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. And that's a stumbling block to Jews. That's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. There's no comparison to God. Jesus Christ. You want to know what's true? He tells us. If Jesus said it, it's true. He's the wisdom of God. When you believe what Jesus says is the truth, (laughs) you wise up. When we believe what Jesus said is old-fashioned and not true anymore, we dumb down. When we believe a a scientist or a professor or a celebrity or a friend or whoever who says that God's word is not true, we're we're dumbing down. We're not wising up. Who's smarter? A scientist who studies the universe or the God who created it? Your professor who wrote a book or almighty God who wrote the book? will never pass away. Who's smarter? Scientist, uh, your friend, you, or God? Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Second, Jesus Christ is the power of God. 
So power up. That's the message. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Hey, you church, yeah, I know. You didn't have your PhD in philosophy. You weren't teaching at the University of Corinth. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose you. God chose the the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Maybe there are days you don't feel like you're very important or you're very gifted or you're very rich or influential or powerful. Well, God chose you. And that makes you all those things for all of eternity. Verse 28, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. Who has more power? You or God? Jesus Christ. He's the power of God. So why would we want to rely on our own power to live this life when God wants to give us his power? Why would we want to do things, the things that we can do in our power, but that's all, instead of doing the things that God can do in his power through us? The power of Jesus in your life. That's what God wants to give. Now, at this point, about a third of you are asleep and the others are starting to nod off. We're going to have a little audience participation. Okay, could we do that? I'm going to ask for some volunteers that I picked out before the service. As the service started, I looked for what I thought was perhaps the biggest, strongest man in, in the congregation. And Kyle Poffenbarger, you made it. So if you would thank you for volunteering to come up <laughs> and help me. Now, uh, I did not, do not want this to be a battle of the sexes or anything like that, but I also wanted to pick out a uh, a, a lady who I felt also was, you know, very strong. Ladies are strong. And so I picked out Emily Coburns. If you'd come up, she, she's, uh, she's, yeah. Okay, very good. Thank you so much, Kyle, for helping me. I know you're really enjoying this. Kyle's on our softball team, and uh, we're really glad for him. Emily, thank you so much. Appreciate your help. Okay. Now, uh, just have a little contest here. We're talking about power, okay? We're talking about power doing things. So I got a little something here. All right. Now, Kyle, we'll let you go first. You look like an ace. Would you please open that? Okay. Oh, I don't have one. Do you? You can't open it with your bare hands? 
All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. You did you did it great. All right. Now, Emily, he can't open this, uh, so you probably can't either, right? You can open that? Oh. Oh, you can open this. Well, do, how, do we believe she can open it? I don't, I don't want to open it and then my spill will all over the place. But thank you so much. I appreciate that. You did great. I really, really appreciate that, man. Now, here's the point. Here's the point, okay? Kyle couldn't open a can because he doesn't have a can opener. Oh, but that's not true. He does. He has one at home. All right? Now, Emily, of course, I cued her up. She doesn't usually carry a can opener in her purse. <laughs> but I cued her up, and so she put one in there. And do you remember at the beginning we read that God has given you a gift or several gifts? They're called spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 14, we're going to talk a lot about that. Friend, if you are a child of God, you have gifts from God that enable you to do what is humanly impossible. You have gifts, you have the ability to help someone come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and become a follower and go to heaven. And most Christians would say, I can't do that. I can't help. I can't witness to somebody. I can't explain to someone how they can become a Christian. I can't talk to a stranger. You know, I can't. I can't. Well, you can't. But you know what? If you're a child of God, you have that gift. Don't leave it at home. Don't leave it in the closet. Don't leave it unused. Be armed with it at all times because, friend, you have been called by God to do things that matter for all of eternity, not just the things that you can do here on earth in your strength. Why would you settle for that? When you can do things that matter for eternity with Jesus Christ, the power of God, You've been called to do that. And God's going to do it in and through you if you'll just let him. If you'll want him. If you want your life to matter for all of eternity. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. So wise up. We're going to talk about that for the next 12 weeks. But friend, Jesus Christ is the power of God. So power up. Don't say when Jesus, when the Bible says, when Jesus says, do, do this, you say, I can't. Yes, you can. And you will in the power of God. And I hope you'll do some application. One of our core values around here is we take next steps. When we hear God's word, we want to do something about it, not just go home and forget about it. What's the next step for you? How about trusting in God's wisdom rather than your wisdom? Hey, you've got important decisions to make. Proverbs 3 says, do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord and he'll guide you. He'll give you wisdom. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He does. He's planned it. Trust in the wisdom of God for those decisions you have to make. Rely on God's power rather than your own. Because 
do the things that he's called you to do. Let's bow. Oh, Father, we've been called. We've been blessed. We've been enriched. We've been given this and that. Lord, it's easy for us to just leave those things on the shelf of our life. When you create us and called us to, to, to live for something far more important, far greater, longer lasting for all of eternity. And Father, I pray that we'd be those kinds of Christ followers. Lord, you want to forgive every one of us for every sin we have ever committed. And that's why you sent your son, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. That's why he died on the cross. So all our sins could be forgiven. So we'd become a new creation. So we would, would be wise by the wisdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'd have power, spiritual power, to do the things that really count for all of eternity. And so, Father, may we claim those things. We study your word as we listen to you and not just the wisdom, the wisdom of this world, God. May we become wise, spiritually wise, eternally wise. And dear Father, let us let go of the things that would keep us from that. And dear Lord, when you're not answering the prayers the way we think you ought to, help us to realize that you have a far better answer. And the best thing we can do is trust in you and not in ourselves. Rely on you, your power, not our power. And so Lord, may we commit ourselves to do those things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?